Let's continue our, our walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So turn there to chapter 3 and verse 11. Paul writes, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Our God and Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this book that we've been in now for a few months. We pray that you would give us, again, a supernatural clarity of thought, both for me as I speak and for all those here as they listen. We pray that you would be at work through your word, that words that are just words on the page to many people would become life-giving words to us, give us direction and hope and joy and encouragement, would drive us to you, would motivate us to go to you more and more in prayer. We pray that you would teach us to pray better and more effectively as we give our attention to this prayer of the Apostle Paul, which you inspired and caused to be set down in Scripture. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. How do you pray for other Christians? How do you pray for other believers? You likely know if you're a Christian, I'm supposed to be praying for, for people in my life. I'm supposed to be praying for my church and my kids and my cousins and neighbors that are Christians. I know that my church is not the only faithful church in the world. There's other churches in America, in California, in China, Russia. How should I pray for them? I think too often our, our prayers, they tend to be, they drift toward the mundane. They drift toward things that are just naturally not of utmost significance. We pray, for example, we, we ask our, our neighbor, how can we pray for you? And they say, well, I just reseeded my lawn. You can pray for my lawn to grow. And so we think, okay, um, what, why not? I suppose God causes grass to grow, and that's a concern of theirs. Um, but whereas it's not forbidden to pray for those things, it's, it's really trivial. Lots, a lot of our prayers are trivial, trivial in the light of what's ultimately significant. And God caused this prayer here that I just read of Paul to be written down, set down in Scripture as an example for us, as an example. And really, we've been drawing example. We've been looking at Paul and this church as an example this whole way through in these first three chapters. And so when we get to his prayer, uh, there's three lessons that we can learn from this prayer to pray more effectively for, uh, for the believers in our lives especially the believers in the church or uh, children or, or friends that you know that may go to other churches? How can we pray effectively for them? Well, look at 
verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Notice that Paul doesn't just say, Now I pray to God such and such a thing. Look at how he addresses God. And his address here teaches us that we should pray confidently for the other Christians in our lives. And so where do I get that? I get that from the address, how, God, how Paul addresses God in his intercessory prayers. He doesn't just pray to God. No, it's to God, the Father himself. And so in the original language, there's actually an emphasis on God. And many of our translations have the word himself. In English, that's a bit awkward. It seems like a word that's not necessary, but when it says, now may our God and Father himself, the himself there is emphasizing the subject. So it's significant who Paul is addressing in prayer, right? We have direct access to God himself. We don't need a a lesser being. We don't need an angel. We don't need a priest. You don't even need me to pray for you. You can go directly to God the Father for the believers in your life as you intercede for them and pray for God to grow them in the faith. God is an open door, and this is all throughout Scripture. People have said this is perhaps the, one of the greatest themes in the Bible, that God has an open door to the person that has faith in him. So to the believer, God has an open door for you to walk through and bring petitions directly to him at any time. At any time, if you come with a clean conscience and with a sincere heart. He said in Jeremiah, Call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. It doesn't get any clearer than that. It can't put it any plainer than that. God wants us to address him. When we see people in our lives, Christians especially, that are not doing well. They're not doing well. And we're grieved. We're vexed in a sense, by them. We're we're concerned. We're burdened for them. Uh, We want to do something for them. We've tried and it's just not, nothing we've done has seemed to help. We have a burden. God wants us to bring that burden directly to him. That's what Paul did. He wasn't, remember, he wasn't able to go back to the church. He was only able to write this letter. He desperately tried multiple times to return to the church to help them, to straighten out some of their disorders, and correct some of their fears about the second coming of Christ, but he wasn't able to, and so he prayed. He prayed to God. But why why do you have this kind of access to God, all this stuff I talked about? Sin earlier, mentioned how great and evil sin is, how significant it is, how it really does separate all people from God. How can I say, well, God's door is open to you as a believer? as you pray to him. Well, it's because that it's not just God the Father that you pray to. Look at the verse. It says, may our God and Father himself and. (laughs) So we pray to God and someone else. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul prayed not just to God the Father, but also to Jesus. How do you explain that? If you don't believe that Jesus is fully God and the Son of God, this is a pretty hard verse to to explain. And I just want to point this out to you, that when we talk about 
the deity of Christ, there are a few proof texts for that in the New Testament. Maybe John 1.1 1, 1, or other, other statements where it's clearly stated. But if you read the, the New Testament carefully, on every page, the deity of Christ is assumed. It's assumed. Even if it were lawful to pray to a saint that had died, would you address that saint in the same breath as God? Now I pray to God the Father and the Virgin Mary together. You would never do that. You would never raise a creature, a pure creature, to the same height as God in your prayer. And so Paul prayed to Jesus, our Lord. Well, why did he address Jesus in his prayer? Or I could put it another way. Why is the Trinity so important to your prayer life? Why is it important not just to think about God when you pray as an abstract being way out there in control of everything with no personality or relationships? Why is the Trinity so important to prayer? Well, it's because the Trinity is the reason you can pray. Remember that Jesus, our Lord, the second person mentioned here, is your mediator. So the reason why you can pray to God at all as you intercede for other believers or for anything else for that matter is because Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man and thus qualified to stand between you and God. So he can put one hand on God, being God himself, one hand on you and bridge the gap between you and God. You and God. He is, for that reason, called our high priest. So when we pray to God, we have a high priest with us in our prayer. He's making our prayer acceptable to God. And so the Father, when he hears our prayer, he sees his Son. He's looking at his Son, who he dwells with in perfect unity, but he's hearing your prayers. So it's not because you're so great that God's hearing your prayer, your intercessory prayers. It's because Jesus is your high priest who makes your prayers acceptable to God the Father. Jesus also gave you his spirit. And the, his spirit indwelling you is the reason you even want to pray for other Christians or for the church. And so we have to ask the question, will God hear our prayer for his people? When we pray for other Christians, for other believers, whether they're mature or younger in the faith than us, whether there's someone, it's someone leading us or someone we're leading or just appear at some level, can we expect God to answer the prayer? Well, I hope the answer is, is obvious by now. Uh, God's the one that initiated our salvation. God is the one, Jesus is the one who paid for our sin. He died for our sin. And is he going to ignore your prayer to help one of his people? He gave you his spirit, and his spirit is the reason you want to do that at all, why you have new desires, why you want to pray for other people. The spirit is the reason we have those instincts. And so, of course, God will answer our prayer. We have to pray in faith. It might not be the first time, but we pray confidently in our prayers to God as we intercede for others and trust that he will answer those prayers. And so we have confidence to pray and intercede for the church, for other believers, because we pray to the Trinity. And so it's, it's allowed, it's even encouraged to pray to all the members of the Trinity, to God the Father, God the Son, 
and the Spirit being God too, uh, it's fair to pray to him as well. But what specifically should we pray for? We have a motivation. We have the open door. We have the, the promise that we will be heard as God's children. But what specifically should we pray for? Second, we should pray for God to bring mature believers into the lives of other Christians. And this is especially relevant if you have someone at a distance. Maybe your child is living in Europe somewhere, the other side of America. Maybe you have a a friend, a Christian friend who moved away, you haven't seen in a long time, but they're still on your heart and you want to pray for them. What can you pray for? Well, you could, you could pray, well, I pray, God, that you would grow them. Just grow them, God, cause them to abound in spiritual blessings. But that's kind of vague. And honestly, it's hard to be earnest in prayer. It's hard to have your heart in your prayer if it's just vague. Wouldn't you agree? If we keep it vague. But what you can pray for specifically is that God would bring specific Christians into their lives to be with them. And you see that with Paul. That was his concern. He said, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So he prayed that God would open a way for him to return to the church. And why is that? Was he, was he full of himself? Was he saying, well, I'm God's, I'm God's gift to the church. And so all, all these people need is for me to come to town and they'll be set. Well, no, he wasn't a narcissist. He wasn't puffed up in Uh, how God had gifted him. But he just recognized that God usually uses unremarkable instruments. Uh, God is not in the habit now of appearing to us in our dreams. Okay, newsflash. He's he's no longer appearing to us in visions and whispering in our ears, things like that. I know some people claim to hear that, um, but there's also, and I don't mean to be insulting here, but frankly, Uh, We are a heavily medicated culture, heavily medicated. And some of those side effects cause people to think the Lord really is speaking to them. And so I've met well-meaning people like this. They have a lot of problems, but they they think the Lord is speaking to them. But that is just not encouraged in Scripture. We are not all prophets in that sense. And so it's a bit of a rabbit trail. But as we return to this main thought here, we want to pray for specific believers to come into their lives. And that's because, remember, Satan is actively opposing the ministry of the church. Right? Back at the end of chapter 2, Paul said, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. So he knew that these believers desperately needed other Christians in their lives, but Satan was actively hindering that work. He was actively opposing Paul. And so Paul was stopped for for a season from returning to them. But God is able, obviously, to overturn all those obstacles. And so Paul prayed for God to remove those obstacles that Satan had set up. And that prayer was answered. In time, if we read the book of Acts, the narrative there, we see Paul really did return. He did return to the church. He was able to shepherd them further. And so how, how would this apply specifically to praying for other believers. Well, first of all, you should pray that they would have a faithful church. That's, I think, what Paul would pray for if they had no church in their town. Paul would be praying, Lord, establish a faithful church where my Christian friends or family live. And if there isn't one there, then I pray that you'll drive them out of that town 
to a town with a church. I mean, th- without a faithful church, no believer can grow. It's like, a, it's like a, a foot or a hand being cut off from the body. I mean, th- that arm or foot, hand or foot, any part of the body can't survive without being attached to the body. And that metaphor is used multiple times in Scripture to describe us. And so what should you b- be burdened for with the Christian friends and family that you're thinking of? Well, it should be primarily that they'd find a gathering of God's people that's faithful to the Bible. But then secondly, you could pray for those churches to have faithful pastors and teachers there. And so some of you may be thinking, well, I know people that go to a church in Kansas somewhere or Minnesota or Florida. But, I mean, to be frank, the pastor there is not being faithful. He is not faithfully shepherding that church. He's treating it like like a, a show, like an entertainment center. He's not helping my friend or or family member, my son or daughter, when they have problems. He just tells them, "Go see some, go see someone out there for that." I'm just, I'm just the preacher. I'm just the entertainer. I'm the CEO. Okay, but if you need help, go go somewhere else. And that grieves you. And I have people like that in my life that go to churches like that. I love what one old man that I I heard. Um, speak about this issue just when people are in leadership in a church that shouldn't be. What do you do? I mean, what, what can you do? Being on the other side of the country or the world, what can you do to affect that, that church? Well, I know an, an older pastor now, but when he was younger, he, uh, he had elders serving with him, and over time he discovered these guys shouldn't be elders. These guys are not qualified to be elders. And so I said, well, what, do you, what did you do? Uh, you can't just fire your co-elders. And he's, he just looked at me and said, pray him out. And he did. He prayed him out. And they left. Okay, a very practical prayer. But again, that's the point. We want to get more practical here in our prayers. Right? There's, if you know people are in an unfaithful church, or maybe it's a faithful church, but there's unqualified leadership it's a perfectly legitimate prayer for God to ask God to rectify that, to bring new people there to the leadership. Critically important. But then thirdly, and I, I think most importantly, don't underestimate what impact you can have in the people you know. I mean, a lot of us, we, we, we lay down at night and we think about our, our families and we're just grieved. And we think, what, what can we do? It's just a mess. My kids are a mess, or my parents, or my cousins, or my friends, or people that I used to go to church with, and they, they moved away, and now they're just not doing well. We, we get to be fatalistic. Well, there's nothing to be done. They're just, they've just tanked spiritually, and that's, that's all there is to it. A lot of us would tell each other, well, I'm not sure my, my family is saved. I'm not sure my son is saved. I'm not sure my my cousin is saved, or, or something like that. Well, have you told them that? It's, a, it's perfectly fine to just tell them that. Listen, I'm really concerned for your salvation, for this reason, this reason, and this reason. I mean, that's not an insult. You're not sinning against them. That's just an honest expression of concern. And in that moment, that'll be really hard for them to hear. It'll be hard for them to hear your concerns for them, but over time, they'll love you far more 
than if you just say nothing, if we just say nothing. And that was Paul's concern. He was always eager to return to the people he initially uh, had these shepherding relationships with. He wanted to meet them face to face. He knew there was no substitute for having a mature Christian in someone else's life, a flesh and blood Christian to encourage other people. But third, the third lesson we can learn from this prayer, we can move on now to, ch- to verse 12. Let me just read 12 and 13 again to, to refresh our memory of these verses. He says, And, so the second prayer request, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so finally, the final lesson we can learn from this prayer, and I think the most important. So if you haven't been listening to this point, here it is. This is the most important truth, I think, from this passage today. That when we think of another believer, another Christian, and how we should be praying for them, we should be praying that the Lord would prepare them for his return. We should be praying that the Lord Jesus Christ would be preparing that person for the return of Christ, for the second coming. And this, is, this was Paul's great concern for the people he ministered to. He didn't think of the Christian life as just, well, we're saved now and we're going to heaven later. And so between that time and when we die, we just do Christian things and we just try to, to hang in there, do our best, um, raise our families, retire, um, go, keep going to church, and, and there you go. Now, for Paul, there was an urgency. There was an urgency to discipleship and to the Christian life. So discipleship for Paul, living as a Christian for Paul, was to, was to live in the shadow of the second coming. So everything you do, it's in the shadow of the second coming. In other words, everything you do now will become relevant, incredibly relevant when Christ returns. So we're moving toward that goal. And so when we we forget about that, that's when our prayers for other people tend to be unremarkable, unspecific, vague, tedious, trivial. Because there's no, we've lost that sense of urgency, or maybe we just didn't know we should be praying this way. Maybe we haven't forgotten it. Maybe we just haven't learned it yet. That the Christian is expecting the Lord Jesus to return at any moment. He could return now as I'm speaking. I mean, if you knew that the Lord Jesus would return tomorrow, and you had one night, one final night to pray for the people in your life, for the believers in your, in your life, what would you, see how that would change how you're praying? If you knew that were to happen, you wouldn't pray, oh, I pray that they would do well in, in school and, and et cetera, even though we pray for that too. But we pray, oh Lord, I pray there would be nothing, there would be no cause for that believer to be ashamed when the Lord appears. I pray that they would really rid these things out of their life that they've been needing to deal with for a long time. And there would be an urgency to that. So when you keep that concern in mind, it'll just naturally and automatically make your prayers more spiritual for the people in your life. 
as you think about the Lord returning. And a word here, I think it's fair, even though this passage is addressed to believers and it's, it's an encouragement, it's a prayer, it's still fair to address the unbeliever, even in a text like this, because the second coming of Christ is the great event on the horizon in the history and God's program for the world. And most people will not be prepared for it at all. So consider even the unbeliever, or maybe you if you're not a believer today. Most people in the world will not be prepared at all for the Lord's return. Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you acknowledged that you deserve eternal punishment for your sin? So we're talking about the basic things. So forget the, how we're praying for believers. Think, just think for a moment and examine yourself. Have you believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and committed your life to him? If not, then you are not prepared to meet the Lord. Then you're not prepared for him. That when he comes, he's coming as a judge. He's not coming as a universal savior to all people without distinction. It's only to the people that have responded to his offer for salvation. And Jesus wasn't ashamed to speak this way even to his disciples. I mean, listen to how Jesus addressed his disciples. In Luke 17, he said, referring to his return, It will be just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So think of that. In the days of Noah, this guy was building a boat for a hundred years or more. And people, it was just a joke. It was the same thing. I mean, there is a life-size ark now, and I think in Kentucky somewhere, it's a museum. I mean, that's ridiculous. Why, why would someone build that? They had things to do. They had jobs. They had family. They were going to their kids' weddings. They were learning new skills. They were enjoying the fruits of their labor and laughing at this guy. But one day, they were destroyed. Instant destruction. It's already happened. A worldwide judgment has already happened. You realize that? It's already happened. So this is not a fable. It was, Jesus continues, it was the same as in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So there won't be a chance to get yourself ready. There won't be any chance to get yourself ready when you see the Lord returning to say, oh, now I should respond. Now is the day that I, can, I should respond to it because now it's real. It's no longer just church, doing church and Christian things, which all th seems so common and, and useless ultimately in my daily life. Well, all of a sudden now it's relevant. Have you served the Lord Jesus? There won't be time to serve him when you see him breaking on the sky with all his angels returning. And so that's important to consider. 
If you're an unbeliever here today, consider whether or not you are prepared to meet the Lord at all. And if you have not confessed your sin and believed in him, you aren't. But the good news is that he hasn't showed up yet, isn't it? Today's the day of salvation. And so anyone that wants to partake of that gift is free to today, is free to today. And that was the message of Christ too. Okay, but let's come back to the Christian. For most of the people here, that's us. The Christian will be prepared. And I think even as I've been warning about the Lord's return, you may be a little too terrified. And you might be thinking, well, when the Lord returns, if he's going to judge me according to every single way I've broken God's law, which, which are many, there's no way I'll be, I'll be ready for his return. But I want to encourage you today that while it's right to have a healthy concern to be ready for the Lord's return, I want to say if you're a Christian, if you even have shown the slightest proof of saving faith in your life, even the slightest evidence of real love for God, if you've understood the gospel and rested upon Christ for your salvation— you will be ready. And how, how can I say that? How can I promise you that you'll be ready? Well, look at the prayer. Who's the one that prepares Christians to meet the Lord? It's okay. You can talk. You can talk to me. Who, who is it? Who's the one that prepares the Christians? Is it, is it the we prepare ourselves? I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get ready to meet the Lord. Is that what's happening here in this prayer? That's not how Paul thought of it. He said, well, I have something to offer you, you know, as an apostle and someone that had even written scripture to them and was a gifted preacher and teacher and, and pastor. And whereas they were, were doing well, they were true believers, ultimately it was the Lord Jesus himself it is the Lord Jesus himself that needs to step in and prepare the Christian. And look at what the prayer is here. What does the Lord Jesus do to prepare us to meet him? He causes us to increase and abound in love for one another and all people. So the state that you're in today, you may think, well, I probably won't change much between now and when I die. But my prayer for you and, and what, how we should be praying for each other is that when we are finally ready to meet God, when God brings us home, or maybe Christ does return in our lifetime, that we will, be, we will have increased to the point of abounding in love for other people. For other people. And it's helpful here to remember, what is love? So if we want to be prepared to meet the Lord, and that involves increasing in love and abounding in love, what is love again? Well, love is the demonstration. Notice I didn't say the feeling. Love is the demonstration of selfless concern for others. Love is inherently self-giving, right? Love takes risks. Love sacrifices. Love suffers for other people. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears burdens. And if you ever forget what is biblical love, it's just John 3.16. God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way that he gave that he gave. So love is giving. It's not a feeling. Love is something you can do whether or not you're on an emotional high at the moment. 
Love is something you do. You demonstrate a selfless concern for others. And that's the goal. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul wrote to Timothy, the goal of our command is love. So the whole point of this ministry, this church, the whole point of this is for you to grow in love. I mean, yes, that you may be saved from your sin, but growing as a Christian, we summarize that with just the word love. You're growing in love for who? For, for one another primarily as other people who have been indwelt by God's spirit and saved by him, we, we first of all show our love to, to each other in the household of God, other brothers and sisters in Christ. But then also it's not restricted to all people at the end of verse 12. For all people, just as we also do for you. And so Paul there at the end of verse 12, he, he draws attention to himself. This is kind of surprising how often he does this. He, he sets himself as an example how, how would you feel doing that? Telling other people here to grow as a Christian, just be like me. I mean, that's a pretty high, that's a pretty uh, presumptuous thing to do, we may think. But Paul, it's not even the first time he's done it in this letter. Right? He, he called attention to their blameless conduct even in chapter 2. And so we can increase and abound in love. Paul did it. And there's people recorded in Scripture who God took and they were vile people. They were worthless people. They didn't care about other people at all. And God made them the most caring, loving people the world's ever seen. You really can increase and abound in love for other people. But it's, how does that happen? Well, the Lord does it, but does he just do it automatically? No, it, it requires prayer. So Christ bestows these blessings. It's ultimately all a gift from him. But we need to pray. And so what does that mean if our church doesn't pray? If, if the prayers I offer, if our, our church's prayers is limited to the prayers I offer in our services, or when we pray maybe before our potlucks, what, what is that going to result in? Is there going to be much love around here? Probably not. I mean, Christ, he has the gift in his hands ready to give it. But he gives it in response to prayer. He gives it in response to prayer. And so what will be the result of Christ giving this spiritual growth to his people? As we intercede for one another and our Christian friends and family, and Christ actually does do this in them, he causes them to abound in love, what will be the result of that? Well, the result is here in verse 13. So that. So it's not just may you grow in love period. It's, there's a purpose to it. There's an intended result to that prayer request. So that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness. So when the Lord returns, what he's going to do, to, he's, he's going to recognize his people by their demonstration of love. Not perfection, not perfect love, but a committed life of loving him by loving his people and also all people in the world to the extent that we're able to. That's how he will recognize us. And so by causing us to abound in love, that will strengthen our hearts. To strengthen the heart, that's not mainly referring to an emotional aspect of it, like, oh, I want to be courageous. That's not the, the nuance here. To strengthen, it, it, 
he could have also said to fix in place, to set firmly in place. It's the same word that is used uh, of a pillar you would, you would fix into the ground to hold up a, a heavy building. The idea is you are so set in your ways of loving that you are established in that path. You're established, and, and it's a habit. It's a new habit the Holy Spirit has given you. And when you are in that way, when your heart, your inner life, your thoughts and feelings and your decisions are fixed in love, that will result in being blameless in holiness. Blamelessness, uh, some Christians struggle with this term, blameless. They think, well, if I'm supposed to be blameless, we just knee-jerk back to, well, no one's blameless, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we just kind of throw our hands up. I can never be perfect. Well, blameless, notice it's not the word perfect. It's not the word perfect. Blameless means there's no significant controversy between you and God. That is how I would put it for the sake of our time here. And it's not saying that only the people that are as righteous as the Apostle Paul will go to heaven because we all know some Christians die and they do, they don't live as they should. They, they miss out on some of their reward. But being blameless, let me, just, let me just point you to a few examples in Scripture to prove that this is a real condition that you can have and attain as a Christian. Um, Job, in the book of Job, Remember how the Lord, how God described him. So I just want to show you a couple of blameless individuals in Scripture here. Verse 1 of Job, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Okay, what kind of man was Job? That man was blameless. So notice, it doesn't say perfect. Even if you read the whole book of Job, you discover he questioned God a bit even a bit too much at times. So there were faults with Job, but he was blameless, meaning there was no active controversy between him and God. He earnestly sought God. He was a forgiven man, and even though he lived before the time of Christ, he believed that God forgave sin through sacrifice, and he lived a committed life to God. John the Baptist's parents are also called blameless, a man and a woman, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I believe. Uh, Luke says that they were blameless also. And then finally, Paul says, if you just glance back at chapter 2, verse 10, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. And so Paul was blameless. He, He wasn't afraid to ascribe that quality to himself. And that's, the, the point is that you can be blameless. There are many people in Scripture that are, that are called that way, that are called by that uh, adjective. So to be blameless, it's really two aspects of it. There's you need to be forgiven of your sin, because obviously if you have no forgiveness of sin through Christ, there is a controversy between you and God. You're not blameless. There's a lot of blame that you deserve for all your sin, but okay, assuming that I really am a Christian and I've been forgiven for all my sin, but I'm also also still conscious of my daily faults. I have an occasional blow up. I'm still trying to get a hold of my anger 
or my pride or my discontentment or my sinful anxiety even? Can I still be blameless even though I'm not perfect? And the answer is yes. None of these individuals I mentioned were perfect people. Their, their sins were all recorded, even Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. He was, he was punished for doubting the, um, the revelation from the angel. But he was, he was a blameless man overall. And the point is that you are not actively holding on to any known sin in your life. And so the nature of, of just our fallen minds is we can never know, we can never fully know how corrupt we are. I mean, I could be sinning right now, but the Lord just hasn't brought it to my attention. The point is, do I have a clean conscience? The things that I am aware of, am I turning from those things? Have I brought that to God? Am I confessing my sin and striving to obey God's commandments? So we can be blameless. And blamelessness is said to be in holiness in this text. Holiness is the the idea of being separated from sin. So you've made a clean break from your sin and you've devoted and consecrated your life to God. That's what blameless in holiness means. Before our God and Father, uh, that refers to appearing before God at the end of the age when Christ returns, that we'll stand before God and give an account of our lives. And so that does imply a type of judgment. But we have to take all of Scripture here, every time we come to one of these passages that talk about us standing before God, giving an account to God, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. We could, we could quote all these passages. We have to hold those with one hand, but at the other hand, we hold on to Romans 8, verse 1. There is no, now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So whatever the nature of that judgment will be when we stand before God, it won't be a judgment of condemnation for the Christian. It will be a judgment of reward, of reward. Nonetheless, we still will stand before God and give an account to how we live. And this will be at the coming of the Lord Jesus when he returns, telling us when this will happen, and with all his saints, referring to who will be there. This won't be a secret prayer closet meeting. This will be the most public gathering of all history. There'll be saints. There'll be saints and angels, thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps millions. A public judgment for the believer. But again, judgment, a judgment that is gracious according to God's grace. A judgment of which we are promised there will be no condemnation that's a part of it. And we'll be graciously rewarded for all the things that we've done for God. And so we have to keep that in mind. And I really want you to rest on this thought that, that the Lord is the one that gives the increase. And that's the title. If I had to give a title to the message, it would be the Lord Jesus gives the increase, the kind of growth that we are referring to here. He prepares people for the second coming. And so as you pray for the people in your life, other believers, here's just one lesson to help you, help you with that. That you, you can think about two days when you pray. And even now, if you want to write down the name of someone that you want to be praying for, another Christian, you can have two days in mind. You can have today. Okay, what's happening today? What is the state of their soul today? But then the second day, you should be thinking about the return of Christ. And wow, that will give a lot more clarity to how you pray for people, won't it? 
You won't be praying, oh, I pray they would, you know, clean up their act or things like this. It would be a spiritual prayer that they would be strengthened to abound in love for one another and for all people. Even Christians were prone to be selfish. We could, we could still have seasons where we, uh, we become reclusive and selfish, but we can pray for the people in our lives that the Lord would give them an increase and even an abundance of love and prepare them for his coming. It's really important to pray. Okay, so prayer, we become prayerless, one, if we just, we lose the importance of it. There is a real importance to prayer. And when you pray, it's not just, it's not just an exercise. It's not a, just a devotional exercise. That today, it really will be different because you're praying today. And unless you believe that, of course you're not going to pray. Of course you're just going to pray, you know, help me with a few trivial matters and thank you for this food and, and etc. Okay, so I hope that's helpful to you. It's been helpful to me even as I've been thinking about how to be praying for you. And you can know that I'll be praying this for you during our time together. And so with that, let's commit all this to the Lord and ask him to, to help us grow, especially in our in our interceding for one another. Our Father, we thank you that we can approach you in prayer. We thank you that your Son has made a way for us to approach you, approach your throne of grace, and receive help in our times of need. We thank you for all the promises in Scripture and even the commands where you command us to pray, to come to you, to run to you as children run to a father. And we pray that you would give us those kind of hearts, hearts that are eager to come to you, not only for ourselves, but for other people. I pray that if we have been prayerless and we've all not prayed as we should have this week or even yesterday, and you know all our faults, we pray that you would increase the love in us for other people that would drive us to pray, that ought to drive us to pray for others more. We pray that you'd help us to pray more specifically for the believers in our lives and even for churches, even for the churches we know where our families attend or even churches in town. We pray that you would help us to intercede for your people wherever they may be. We also pray that, well, I also pray specifically for the people here today, that you, Lord Jesus, would cause them to increase and abound in love for one another, first of all. I thank you even for the the demonstrations of that love so far, and we pray that there would be a great increase in the demonstration of love among us, and that all people would know that we are your disciples because of how we treat one another, of how we give to one another and love each other in in a sacrificial way. And I also pray for every true believer here that you would give them an assurance that they really are saved and an assurance that if the Lord were to come this very moment that he would accept them. I pray that they would not be discouraged in their walk with with you as a result of this sermon, but that it would drive them to you with a new urgency and zeal. Perhaps if there is something in their life that isn't right that they do need to to war against uh, with, with a, a fresh diligence and strength that you would enable them to do that. that. I pray you'd also give them all a good conscience 
that they would be able to sleep at night because their conscience is no longer gnawing them because of some hidden sin or because of some relationship that is out of order. We pray that you would give us all the peace of a good conscience and so that when we see Christ appearing, we will be so happy. We will be so glad to see him and we will not be terrified at his coming because you are the one who have prepared us for him. We pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.